All right. Good morning, Rooted. So glad that you could join us this morning. I hope that you have had a great week. I know that God has been good to you because he's always good. And I hope that you realize that the last time we were together, we were talking about a most controversial subject on the role of women in the church. And I would just remind you that what we try to do in our class is not just reinforce what we've always been taught, but take the word of God as it states itself and interpret it in the light of its context. And even when that context maybe cuts across what has been the norm and the accepted view of the church for some time or the church you grew up in or your background, depending on your denomination, and when it does cut across what you've been accustomed to, you've got to look and understand why we say we believe what we say, what we believe, and what the Word of God says, and how we make those two things compatible. And here's what we always seek to do. We never seek to change the Word of God. We always seek to change our viewpoint to match up with the Word of God. And I'll just be candid with you. There's lots of things in my life that I believe for a certain time, studied the Word of God for myself, and made a change. And uh, sometimes in a more stricter sense, sometimes in a more liberal sense, liberal in the as uh, my peers would probably call it, but I'm just trying to follow the Word of God. That's all we want to do. Let me go ahead and say as we begin, thank you so much for watching this video. It means a lot to me. Uh, you just don't understand how much it means to me. I'm so glad that you would take the time. I hope you're getting something out of 1 Corinthians. I encourage you to read it on your own as we work our way through the book. There's no way I can deal with this on a verse-to-verse -verse level. Well, I could, but 1 Corinthians would be five years long. And I would lose some of you definitely before we ever got to the end. But we're in chapter 11. We're making good progress. Only 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians. And so be reading those as we approach these verses you understand. Another thing, if something blesses your heart or you get encouraged through something I say, let me know about it in the comments. Give me a like. Let me know what God used in your life because it helps me know that God is using it. Not for my own praise and glory, but just so I know this investment is worth the effort and time. And then share it with somebody. And thank you so much for those of you who do. And so in dealing with 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11 and understanding the role of women in the church, we always have to take all subsidiary verses under the premise that is stated indirectly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 5. And Paul is dealing with the fact that women are to carry themselves in such a way as in direct opposition to the way women were acting in Corinth. We always have to keep that context in view, and it is the context of the culture and the time period in which he was writing. And when he was encouraging women to make sure that their hair was long, it was because the temple prostitutes shaved their head, which is an expression of their availability for the immorality that went on in the worship. We're going to deal with that some today. But I would just remind you that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5 tells us that if a woman prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head, and that is even all one as if she were shaven. Right? He is dealing with the fact about the woman's hair not looking like the temple prostitute, but he makes this statement. If a woman prays or prophesies in church is what he's talking about. That's all the, the whole context of the passage. And there is almost no one who will argue the fact that prophesying in the New Testament means to proclaim the word of God. It's the term we use for preaching. There's foretelling and forthtelling. And every prophet in the Old Testament prophesied in the sense that he told what God said. Sometimes that was a prediction for the future, but more often than not, it was the condemnation, it was the encouragement, it was whatever God told him to tell him. And so this morning, I am prophesying by that definition. I'm trying to give you what God said. And this verse says that if a woman prays or prophesies or preaches with her head uncovered, she dishonors her head. Now, 
we've already dealt with the head part, and I'll touch on it again in review. But what he's trying to remind us of is that it is possible for a woman to pray and preach in church. That's what he's saying. Now, you know, culturally, it has been accepted that some denominations allow women to do anything, and there's really no church precedent for that kind of liberty. Some churches allow women to do nothing, to absolutely be silent all the time, and those are some extremes, and there's nothing in the Bible that teaches that either. The Bible does seem to teach that maybe it's the exception and not the rule, but women can preach and pray in the church according to these verses. Now, when it says she dishonors her head, it's not talking about her physical head. It's talking about the head to whom she is in submission, her husband, her pastor. And so she gets up and teaches and preaches. She must do so in submission to the authority that God has placed her under. It's not demeaning to women because men have authority we're under. As I work at Liberty Baptist Church, I am the number two in the church hierarchy, so I have to be submitted to Pastor Matt, and then he is submitted to God as I'm submitted to God. And your whole life is about submission. It's about submission. Just tell the policeman who pulled you over that you're not going to submit and see what happens to you. I mean, it's, it's our whole life. You never get to the place uh, where you get to live out the teenage dream of I'm just going to live my life like I want to. You never can because there's always something you have to be in submission to. And this verse just reminds us that when a woman carries out that position of leadership in the church, She's supposed to do so in submission to the authority that God placed her under, and that is that local church body and her husband specifically. All right. So there are other verses in Scripture, and we just touched on these, and this is such a contradictory uh, viewpoint and argument that I want to just touch on these verses in review and then add some to it today. Remember that um, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which we'll get to maybe in a week or two, tells the women to keep silent in the churches, and if they have any questions, ask their husbands at home. All right. Well, we know, first of all, that it can't be a contradiction of 1 Corinthians 11, 5, all right? because he said that first. And so what does it mean for the women to keep silent? Well, the whole passage is about speaking in tongues. And he's saying the women shouldn't speak in tongues, and if they have a question, ask their husband at home. Because it was the, the trend or the, the practice, the custom, rather, of Corinthian churches for the women to sit on one side and the men on the other. And sometimes the festivals of the heathen, those attitudes would carry over to the service. And if a woman had a question, she'd just holler out and talk to her husband. A lot of noise going on. He's like, be, be, be silent. Ask him at home. Don't disrupt the order of the service. Because right after, right before he makes that statement, he says, God's not the author of confusion. Don't create confusion in the church. He's not saying you can't talk inside the building. He's just saying, while it's going on, don't be hollering out, talking. Be quiet. Don't create confusion. Don't create confusion. Ask your husband at home. That's what he's saying. And we take it way too far, kind of make it seem like a woman can't speak. We use it to keep women down and uh, express our authority as men because we're so much greater. Oh, please, if that's your attitude, and, and I run into some of these guys sometimes on Twitter and Facebook. I really shouldn't even bother with it, but um, uh, I, I remember one time I was on a theological discussion, and, and a woman made a point, a valid point. And somebody said, what's a woman doing on here correcting us men? On this, on this particular passage. And I just ripped off about 15 places in the Bible where God has used women. Phoebe and Aquila and Priscilla and all the other ones that I've given you already in the past. And uh, we got in a big long argument about, well, she can't preach because she's not the husband of one wife. And when we, if I ever get to deal with that passage because it's not in 1 Corinthians, I will gladly explain that to you. And uh, God has not demanded that every man be married and every man be married with multiple children because that's the way you have to take it. If you apply all the passages of scripture that deal with the requirements of a bishop, it's just saying that if a man is married, he can only have one wife. And if he does have kids, they need to be in subjection. That's all he's saying. He's not making a requirement for those things. And so therefore, 
Um, we will deal with that later on, but just that arrogance that goes with the spirit of the superiority of men. Now, God has used male leadership all through the Bible. All the apostles were men. All the writers of the Bible were men. But if you make it a hard, fast rule that God can't use women and does not use women, you are limiting the sovereign right of God. You are limiting the spiritual gifts that God had given some women. You definitely are. And don't box God into your little tiny small box with your arrogance and pride. God says that a woman can pray and prophesy in the church. She just needs to do so in subjection. All right, and then the other passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12 says, Suffer not a woman to teach, uh, uh, have dominion over the man, but to be in quietness. And it comes across in the sense that a woman is not to teach in the sense of having dominion over a man. It goes back to the submission of teaching and preaching with her head covered, right? It's not, she's not to act as the final authority on things, as the word in dominion over man. She's supposed to teach and preach in subjection. And that verse is not a contradiction of 1 Corinthians 5. It is supplementary because it gives us a further expression of the subjection that God is looking for. All right, so get all of that together. Now, if you're mad at me about that, you don't believe a woman can preach or teach in any capacity, then just tell me what you do with 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. Put it down in the comments or private message me. Uh, email me, dustybracket at gmail.com, and I'll be glad to talk to you about it. I'm not the final authority on anything. I'm still learning and growing, and if you can give me insight I do not have, please do. But I'm just looking at these verses and trying to interpret them as the Word of God instructs us. And that being the case, it is clear that there are at least some cases where she can pray and prophesy in the church as long as she does so in submission to her husband. All right, now let's look at some other verses in this passage that are just curious to us and have some things to do with woman. And look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. No, that's not the verse I want. Oh, verse 10 is the verse I want. All right. For this cause of the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. All right. What does it mean when she says she's supposed to have power over her head because of the angels? All right. What does that mean? As I read that, I'm like, Okay, I, I, I don't I don't get that. The woman power on her head, subjection because of the angels. Well, there's there's two viewpoints. First of all, that angels are spectators at our assemblies at church. When we're together, angels are watching. So over the dusty, that's weird. Well, there's some precedent. First Corinthians chapter four, verse nine. Back up just a couple pages. Read this verse. For I think that God has set forth forth us the apostles last as it were appointed to death for we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men all right so in some capacity angels watch our life they do they're in our church services i believe even more than that i believe that you can go back to oh, is it second kings chapter five or six i have to look it up but when elijah no, it was Elisha, was surrounded by the Assyrian army at Dothan. And the young man went out and looked outside and saw the Syrian army surrounding them. And he cried out to Elisha, what are we going to do? And Elisha said, Lord, open his eyes because there's more that be for us than be with them. And there was a encirclement of angels, an army of angels surrounding the army of the Assyrians. And so the Assyrians thought they had Elisha surrounded, but God had the Assyrians surrounded. And it just reminds us that there is an element of spiritual warfare that we don't often think about. That there are angels, both uh, good and demonic, that are always present and around, and they're viewing us. 
and that there was always warfare going on. Even as you watch this video, you sit in a church service sometimes, there's warfare going on for the attention of people. Uh, have you ever noticed sometimes that a distraction will happen at the very moment that the pastor is driving home the, the greatest point sometimes or when there's someone in the church who is not a believer and they come and everybody's excited because they came for the first time and inadvertently they sit down right next to or right behind or right in front of the baby that's going to cry the whole service or something. And there's, there's warfare involved, right? There's warfare. I'm not blaming the baby or the parents or anything. I'm just saying it's not coincidental sometimes that there are things that come along that demonstrate the fact that there's more going on than what we can see. And this verse seems to teach that the woman needs to be in subjection because the, the angels are watching. They're watching. And I don't know what they get out of seeing that. Maybe it leads them into deeper subjection to God. And we'll touch on that just for a second. But um, it's just a reminder that what we do is seen not just by our world, by, but by the other world as well. And uh, whatever Paul meant by that, that's something to consider, that we are made a spectacle for the angels. And the second reason is that angels are an example for human beings because of their humility before God. Now, in Isaiah chapter 6, we have the seraphim that fly around the throne. And they have six wings, and with two they fly, two they cover their feet, and two they cover their face. Why do they cover their face and their feet? It's, a, it's an attitude of subjection. It's an attitude of humility. So, Brother Dusty, those are seraphims. They're not angels. Well, we refer to the term angels as anything that is not human that lives in the world we cannot see. Whatever tier there are, seraphims, cherubims, things celestial because they are not things terrestrial, all right? They are angels, and we use that to group all of them together, whatever tiers or levels there may be. And so when we refer to the seraphims particularly, there's an example of humility before God. And we know that all angels act in humility before God or they wouldn't be in heaven. All right? That was Satan's problem anyway, was that he rebelled against God, would not act in humility and got kicked out of heaven. You can read all about that in the book of Isaiah. And as we look at all of those things, we understand what Jesus meant when he said in the Lord's Prayer, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Um, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is he saying? He's saying that he wishes humans had the same obedience and humility on earth as the angels do in heaven. Because what goes on in heaven is exactly what God wants to go on. And these angels are living an example for human beings because they are living in subjection and humility. And let me just remind you, whether it's dealing with the angels whether it's dealing with the women in subjection to their husbands, whether it's dealing with husbands in subjection to Christ and to the pastor that God has placed them under. The whole book of 1 Corinthians is about the lordship of Jesus Christ and his right, his sovereign right to demand our allegiance and obedience. What? Know ye not? You're bought with a price. You are not your own. You belong to God. He has a right to do whatever he wants with us. And oftentimes we get all caught up in what we think is the infraction of our rights or the violation of our rights. But the case is just not so. Um, sorry, I should put that up right. The case is just not so that uh, we have all of these rights. All of us surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And sometimes we make salvation just salvation without ever really recording that the lordship part of it. And I know people run from that terminology because I'll be honest with you, we as human beings don't like it. We don't like the lordship side. We just want the salvation side. But God has a right to your life. He 
right? And if a man is saved and in subjection to the Lord, he will have no problem being in subjection to his pastor, to his boss, to the authority that God has placed in his life. If a woman is a believer, she'll have no problem. And she submitted to Jesus. She'll have no problem submitting to the authority of her husband that God has placed in her life. And as the angels are in subjection to Christ, there is no difficulty or hardship whatsoever. And the verse just reminds us that we are to maintain our submission because people and angels are watching us. Now, however that carries out is not clear in the passage. But it is clear that they are spectators of what's going on. All right. Second verse I want to look at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is verse 14 and 15. Doth not nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given her for a covering. All right. Let me talk about this just for a minute. I grew up uh, in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I went to a Christian school. And I can remember there was a girl in my class. I'm not going to say her name because who knows? She may come across this video one day. But she was from a Mennonite family. And she wore a little head covering on her hair to school every day. I have since seen her as an adult on Facebook. And she still wears a head covering uh, because she still practices the Mennonite religion. Fine. All right. I'm not talking about the Mennonite religion at all. I'm just dealing with the fact of the feeling that the Bible teaches us that that particular head covering is necessary. It's not just Mennonites. There are groups of people who practice head coverings in church. Now, maybe you've been to a church where all the women wore hats because of this. Or sometimes the women wear the little lace things. It looks like they pulled it off their coffee table. They had a lamp or something on it, and they just bobby pinned it on there, and now their head's covered. I'm just kidding a little bit, but when I was a boy, that's what I thought they were, those little doilies that they put on their head. And I've been to uh, Baptist churches where the women had some kind of uh, uh, beanie or hat or, or beret or something on their head in the service because of this passage of Scripture, because they need to keep their head covered. And while I respect all of the men of God who approach this passage and arrive at that conclusion, I, I just rest in verse 15 that tells me that she needs to be covered and her hair is her covering. That's what it says. Her hair is her covering. All right? That's what it is. But in context with verse 14 and 15, he's dealing with length. That's what he's dealing with. All right? And he's saying that a woman should have long hair. It is her glory. And I hear you. I hear you. I hear you. All the men in verse 14 are going, well, how long is long? And all the women in verse 15 are going, how long is long? I think the principle here, taking the cultural application of the shaved prostitutes in the temple, is that your hair ought to be long enough that I can identify your gender just by looking at you. All right? Just by looking at you. All right? And I've met lots of women sometimes I didn't know until I got around to the front side and could see their face and things to determine and their anatomy as well. I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, determine their gender. And I've seen some uh, some beautiful men that I, I I thought were women because of the length of their hair and maybe some effeminacy until I got around to the front side and saw what they were missing and the facial hair they might have had or all the other things. It shouldn't be that way. Paul is simply stating that um, your hair as a woman is your glory, and it ought to be long enough that when I glance at you, it's easy for me to see that you're a woman. All right? Easy for me to see, see that you're a woman. Um, and when I glance at you as a man, I'll identify you as a man. The Bible says nature teaches us that it's a shame for a man to have long hair. This transcends the cultural application. And Paul just says, you ought to just know it. You ought to just know it. Well, how long is long? It, 
I'll be able to say, see that you're a man, right? You know, when I was growing up, off the ears and off the collar. That, that was the rule at my Christian school. You had to, people had white walls around their ears and up off their collar, and they practiced that standard like it was the law. Well, unfortunately, that's just not in the Bible. It's not, all right? If your hair is touching your ears, so what, all right? I don't care. As long as I can identify you as a man, I don't really care about those things. And so where the line is, I don't know. I don't know. But you ought to be able to identify the sexes based upon the hair is what the verses teach you. And let me go ahead and throw this out there. God does make a distinction between the genders. He does. And he only makes a distinction between two. And I wouldn't offend anybody who struggles with gender identity. I would not. I would not. I'll just give you the standard by which I have to live my life. That God identifies two. And for those anomalies who were born unable to identify their gender, I realize what a small percentage that is, but it is a percentage, and those are people, and they, Jesus loves them, and uh, we need to address those things as well, and those are special cases. But as a general rule, most of us were born either male or female, and God identifies those two, all right? Now, I do know some churches who teach that if a woman's long hair is her glory, that she can never cut her hair. I can remember having friends that went to a church of God, and her hair almost, their mom's hair almost touched the ground because it was so low. Because she was trying as best she could to practice what she believed this passage of Scripture taught. And I have no animosity towards someone who's trying to do right, even if they're trying and they're overstating a truth. I would rather you, rather you overstate it sometimes than understate it and throw it aside. I would. I, I, don't, I don't knock that. But it's not saying you can't cut your hair. can't. And besides that, I... From, what, from my experience with my wife's longer hair, she, she's cut it some lately, but when it was long, it took her so long to wash it and to dry it. I mean, it was an hour and something. And uh, just the convenience of having shorter hair to be able to make it manageable. And you certainly can be feminine without having hair that drags the ground. And I mean, these women wouldn't even cut the split ends off of it, you know, put it up in a big bun and stuff on their head. It's a lot of weight and things. All right? that's, that's not what he means. I said you can never cut your hair. Just start to have hair long enough that we can identify you as a woman because that is your glory, your beauty, your effeminacy. That is how God made you. And so when I see you, yeah, that's, that's a beautiful woman. Look at her hair. Her hair is her glory. All right? As a man, ought to be short enough. Hey, that's a guy. Shouldn't have any issues with those two things. All right? Now that I made half of you mad, the other half of you keep listening to me a little bit. All right? Long hair is her glory. So let's briefly touch on this. I will not have... A lot of time to get into this, but I want to develop it a little bit. The other thing that Paul, the other problem or enemy in the church that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is not just the place of women, the role of women in the church, but it is the abuse of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you're watching this video and you don't know what I mean by that term, we get the practice and standard from what Jesus did with his disciples before he died. Right? He sat down with them at that Passover feast. And he took the wine, the grape products from the grape juice and all, and he drank it. And he said that this juice represents his blood that he's going to shed for us. And the bread that he broke represents his body broken for us. And then he tells them that they should do that in remembrance of him. And Paul gives us these instructions in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now, before I deal with the abuses that went in with it. I want to talk just about the Lord's Supper in itself. And I really want to do that because there's a general tendency of most Christians, in my experience, to minimize this practice. 
And if they do practice, they don't really experience all that it was intended to experience. It has almost become a byproduct. Even at Liberty Church, we don't do it as often as we should. Now, I have been to some churches that did it every week almost, or I know of churches, and that almost seems to be so often that it loses its specialness. Um, when I pastored for a while, the church before I got there maintained uh, this attitude toward it, and I, we continued that practice of the first Sunday of the month they did it. I know some churches who do it quarterly, but whatever and whenever you do it, it ought to have a special quality to it. And uh, because Jesus tells us that it is the Lord's Supper, L-O-R-D, it's his. And he says in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24, and then he repeats it in verse 25, this do ye in remembrance of me. And the exact wording there is do this so you do not forget me. You said, oh, Brother Dusty, I would never forget Jesus Christ. Yeah, you would. And you have. You have. And all of us need help remembering what he did for us. We get so caught up in our Christian growth in life that sometimes we need to step back, go back to the heart of the issue, which is the love of God expressed for us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And God has given us two forms of remembrance, one within and then one without, because we're in such desperate need of remembering. What do I have within that helps me remember Jesus Christ? I have the Holy Spirit. He puts him within me, and he helps me remember. But what do I have without me, outside, the objective, objective side of things? He gives me the Lord's Supper. He gives me this juice and this bread, which in themselves are not the body of Jesus Christ. We don't practice transubstantiation, consubstantiation. Don't practice those two things. We believe they're just symbols. We believe they're just symbols. And I'll explain those terms maybe later on as we get more in-depth to it. But I want you to realize that God wants us to remember him and his death so badly that he's given us two reminders, one inside and one out, one subjective, subjective and one objective, because one of our greatest dangers in the Christian life is forgetting Jesus Christ. Yeah, as you get busy in your life, you forget about Jesus. I work at a church, and I can forget about Jesus in my ministry. I can so be busy, so busy serving others that I forget about who I'm serving. Kind of related to your marriage. My wife and I are going through a transitional time, selling a house, buying a house, packing up stuff, and we're busy. All day long, we're busy plotting down on the couch. At the end of the day, just exhausted with all the things going on, and you got to tuck in all the normal things of life around all the other things you're trying to do. You know what I'm talking about. Many of you have been down those roads. But sometimes we get so busy in our routine of life that we forget about the love that brought us together in the first place. And you know if you don't cultivate that love, work at that love, make that love what it ought to be, it will shrivel up and die. It's true of Jesus Christ as well. You can get saved and be in the euphoric condition of all God's done for you. Be filled with joy and wonder and keep going on in your Christian life. Five or six years later, the truths that stirred your heart and brought tears to your eyes don't even make you blink. Because it's easy to forget Jesus. And I just remind you that this Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper. It is all about him. And then the second thing I want to give you is that it is an object lesson of redemption. In the Old Testament, what was the main object lesson of redemption? The tabernacle, the sacrifices, the furniture, all those things that went into all of that. That was the Old Testament expression of redemption. What is the New Testament expression of redemption? It's the Lord's Supper. It's the Lord's Supper and baptism. Those two things are the ones that go together. Now, I don't believe foot washing is part of that. None of the disciples practiced foot washing. It was what Jesus was doing in John 13, 12 and 13 was just an example of the servitude that he leaves for us to follow. 
And uh, it was not an ordinance of the church, although some churches do practice that. And if y'all want to take off y'all shoes and y'all want to wash people's feet at the service, you just make yourself at home. There's nothing wrong with it. Just don't demand that I do it in order to keep scripture, to keep scripture because it's not there. But there is really no other room for any other rites. If you grew up as a Catholic, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because these two, the Lord's Supper and Baptism, fulfill the summary of the whole gospel. All I need is right in those two ordinances. And um, uh, the Lord's Supper and Baptism go together, and they're both representative. Now, which is greater of the two? Which is greater of the two, Lord's Supper or Baptism? See, we make Baptism the greatest, oftentimes. But I think the Lord's Supper is the greatest. And it's greater in these regards. Number one, baptism is a one-time thing. You get saved to get baptized. That's, that's the only time you ever do it. But the Lord's Supper should be repeated frequently. Brought to your mind over and over again what he did for you. All right? The Lord's Supper is less disputed than baptism. So many churches argue about baptism. Whether we should pour, whether we should dip, whether we should sprinkle, all of these things. Of course, the Liberty Church is a church that practices immersion because we believe that's the principle established in the Word of God. And it keeps the typology of Romans chapter 6 where, where we are buried with Christ and raised to walk again in newness of life. All right? There's a lot of argument about baptism. There's not a whole lot, a lot of argument about the Lord's Supper. All right? Maybe just about what, what the bread, if it's just symbolic or actually becomes the blood of Jesus. But among conservative fundamental churches, that's not even a discussion. We all view it as symbolic. And so the Lord's Supper is greater in that sense. And then I think that the Lord's Supper is greater because it's a summary of the basic truths of the Bible. It gives me all the phrases, all the phases of the Lord's Supper. All right? Christ died for me. That is the past. All right? Christ lives in me. I take it in and put Christ lives in me. That is the present. And he tells us he'll not drink this cup again until he comes back and drinks it with us in, our, in his Father's kingdom. That is Christ coming for me. That is the future. All of those things are wrapped up in the Lord's Supper. All right? Unfortunately, my time is up. All right? And so next time we're together, we're going to talk about more details about the Lord's Supper. I want to stay here just for a little while because this is a, a kind of uncharted, untouched Waters, we, we, don't, we don't deal with it a lot, and so I want to spend a little bit of time rehearsing and refreshing the importance of the Lord's Supper in our hearts and minds. All right? Do this for me. All right? If you enjoy this video, like it. Tell me what you got out of it, and then share it with somebody. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for watching. This is Dusty Brackett at Liberty Church. This is Rooted. Have a good Sunday.